847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. Following the lively detour last episode to interview soundtrack album producer and editor Neil S. Bulk, I am returning to my multi-part, multi-decade trek through the music of science fiction cinema and its evolving soundscape. In the previous installment, Part 5, I began spotlighting notable science fiction titles in the 1980s, specifically 1980 through 82. The symphonic tsunami initiated primarily by John Williams in the late 1970s continued to wash over the genre on screen. However, synthesizers and electronics were making inroads and also proving to be a compelling musical choice. In addition, while the genre still allowed composers to experiment, it's interesting to observe the increasing effect of audience expectations and sonic templates that were being cemented. With this installment, I plan to wrap up the 1980s with some choice selections to highlight the prevailing trends. It's during these years when we see the outer space fantasy and space adventures entries in the mold of Star Wars begin to diminish, especially once Star Wars itself temporarily exited the cinematic ring with Return of the Jedi in 1983. Science fiction then leaned into more earthbound stories, whether set in present day or the near future. Subjects centered on more alien visitation, time travel, or speculative dystopian futures. The remaining outer space fantasy slash adventures still called out for the warmer, lush symphonics, which you can hear in movies such as Krull, Space Hunter, and The Ice Pirates, while the more Earth-bound science fiction tales like Starman, Runaway, and Terminator actually needed claustrophobic, colder electronic undertones. As I mentioned in the last installment, this latter scoring direction was creative, but also practical. Practical meaning less expensive than hiring an orchestra. And in some ways, the all-synthesizer, or synth, scores can also be interpreted as a rebellion against the more classically acoustic musical modes, which had returned in full force to movies. This is ironic, since the symphonic sound of Star Wars had itself been a rejection of the prevailing sounds of science fiction during the preceding years of the 1970s. So let's continue charting the sounds of the 1980s science fiction by spotlighting a few of these synth scores. When talking about the explosion of electronic scores during the 1980s, the music of Vangelis, Tangerine Dream, John Carpenter, and Harold Faltemeyer are often listed first, but one composer that is occasionally missed is Brad Fidel, whose oppressive, thudding, single-minded score 
for 1984's Terminator is inarguably iconic. This was the little low-budget, dismissed science fiction flick that made stars of both its villain, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and its director, James Cameron. To everyone's surprise, this story of a cyborg assassin from a dystopian future sent back in time kicked off a movie and TV franchise that persists to this day. Composer Brad Fidel was born on Long Island and pioneered the use of synths and other electronic instruments in film scoring. And prior to 1984, Fidel was, you know, mainly untested in theatrical projects, but many involved in the production of Terminator were considered similarly unproven. This was certainly a case when the budget couldn't afford anything more lavish for its music. And yet, nothing except this sound would have fit this film. His music for Terminator was performed live and not via sequencers, and in Fidel's own words, reflect a mechanical man and his heartbeat. This is the main title for Terminator, composed by Brad Fidel. That was Brad Fidel's main title cue for the science fiction time travel action hit Terminator from 1984. Following on from Terminator, Brad Fidel moved on to score Fright Night and Serpent and the Rainbow. Plus, he collaborated again with uh, director Cameron on the first sequel to Terminator, Judgment Day, in 1991, and also True Lies in 1994. This latter project uh, provided him with the opportunity to work with a full orchestra. 
In a similar sonic vein as Terminator, and released in the same year, is another science fiction action movie concerning robots, although in this case they don't time travel or speak with an Austrian accent. This would be Runaway, written and directed by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame, and starring Tom Selleck at peak mustachioed Magnum P.I. fame. The score is composed by veteran Jerry Goldsmith, of course, no stranger to the genre of science fiction, and I've featured his brilliant music many times on this podcast. We last heard from him here uh, via his brooding score for 1981's Outland. Goldsmith had long been interested in incorporating electronics into his orchestral scores for the unique color they can contribute. Uh, such as in The Illustrated Man in 1969, Logan's Run in 1976, and Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. However, during much of the 1980s, this electronic component took center stage for him in both solo efforts, such as this score and Criminal Law, and also uh, when supported by an orchestra, as in Gremlins and Extreme Prejudice. So, we find in Runaway, a near-future setting, and a high-tech story of Tom Selleck's cop character chasing down automated assassin spider robots that are programmed by the villain, played by KISS frontman Gene Simmons. Now, how does Jerry Goldsmith decide to accompany all of this musically? Well, he told Michael Crichton that an all-electronic soundscape was the right choice, not for budget reasons, but purely creatively and he programmed and played the entire score himself, uh, including on the emulator sampling device. And this score for Runaway is still orchestrated to be as melodically, motivically, and rhythmically engaging as any of Goldsmith's other acoustic efforts for the genre. So as an example, here's the Q Alley fight from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Runaway from 1984.
That was the cue called Alley Fight from Jerry Goldsmith's electronic score for the futuristic science fiction action thriller Runaway from 1984, written and directed by Michael Crichton. The synth sound was strong in many subsequent scores by Goldsmith, with two more all-electronic outings for the aforementioned Criminal Law and also another science fiction action thriller, Alien Nation, both uh, in 1988. Interestingly enough, though, his music for Alienation went unused and was replaced by another composer's work. Sticking with the electronic arena, we find overall a warmer, ethereal tone in Jack Nietzsche's score for Starman, another science fiction entry from the same year, 1984. In stark contrast to Terminator and Runaway, Starman is a science fiction chase film, with a romantic center, and uh, was directed by John Carpenter and starred Jeff Bridges as an extraterrestrial who responds to an invitation to visit Earth. Now, this was still the post-Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. era of gentle, friendly visiting aliens who are often then hunted down by humans. Although with Starman, the main thrust is an emerging love story between the leads, Bridges and Karen Allen. In fact, Jeff Bridges was nominated for a lead acting Academy Award. In the last installment, I presented two entries from director John Carpenter's career, Escape from New York and The Thing, noting that Carpenter himself will often compose the scores for his own films. However, 1982's The Thing instead features a score by legendary Italian composer Ennio Morricone, mostly due to it being a major studio project onto which Carpenter was hired as director. And we actually find a similar scenario here. Jack Nietzsche is still an intriguing choice, though, as he had primarily been a songwriter, arranger, and record producer alongside Phil Spector. And Nietzsche then transitioned into film scoring. He actually won a Best Original Song Oscar for co-writing the pop hit Up Where We Belong from the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. Now, for Starman, his synth tones lean, as I mentioned, towards an ethereal, breathy, new age, and at times religious quality, especially with a main theme that is equal parts inspiring uh, and questioning, and almost has a, a hymn-like uh quality to it. Here is that main theme as composed by Jack Nietzsche from the movie Starman. This is from the cue Starman Leaves.
That was a selection of music composed by Jack Nietzsche for the 1984 science fiction drama called Starman. You know, I hadn't really intended for all of my examples of uh, synth scores from, for science fiction cinema to come from this single year, but here we are. Maybe this was just the peak year. And incidentally, this hot trend of electronic scoring wasn't limited to science fiction, but can be heard in most every genre during that decade. Uh, from comedies like Risky Business, um, adult dramas and thrillers like Fatal Attraction and No Way Out, um, action movies like Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop, and also in whatever genre Rocky IV occupies, which I guess is drama generated by copious montages. So I did have one more example of this approach to share from science fiction cinema, Although in this case, the score wraps up in a very grand acoustic orchestral style. Released in theaters the same week as Starman and Dune, this was a sequel, which no one had necessarily been asking for, yet still turned out pretty well overall. directed by Peter Hyams and starring Roy Scheider, was based on Arthur C. Clarke's own book sequel to his original iconic 2001 A Space Odyssey, that movie having been released 15 years prior. Despite Clarke's initial hesitation of a film adaption of his book sequel, he eventually assisted director Hyams in his screenplay of the novel. The story picks up threads from the 1968 Kubrick-directed original, yet is more of a traditional, linear science fiction adventure. Musically speaking, it was a foregone conclusion that the famed classical piece also sprach their... I always have a tough time saying it. <laughs> also sprach Zarathustra, composed by Richard Strauss, uh, would also be included in the sequel, since it was the pivotal piece in 2001's classical temp track score. And even with anticipating this blazing orchestral flourish, director Hyams sought out a synth soundscape to precede it and hired composer David Shire for this task. David Shire, who was born in Buffalo, New York in 1937 and has a strong background as a musician and Broadway songwriter was mostly known for his scores on thrillers of the 1970s, such as The Conversation, The Taking of Pelham 123, and All the President's Men. He even got to revisit this genre when scoring David Fincher's Zodiac from 2007. Shire is very adept at writing for smaller ensembles that effectively ramp up tension and eeriness in the movie that they accompany. With 2010, the instruments utilized to initially essay those qualities include the Synclavier and the Yamaha DX1. Now, both of these instruments also add a sense of reverence and an optimism to the wondrous events happening near Jupiter at the climax of the story. Here is the cue Reactivating Discovery, composed by David Shire from the science fiction adventure 2010. 
That was music from the 1984 science fiction adventure 2010, as composed by David Shire. In his personal life, Shire was once married to actress Talia Shire, who uh, put him into the inner circle of Francis Ford Coppola, and then uh, later married actress Dee Dee Cohn, best remembered for her role in 1978's musical Grease. Also, the synth instrument that I mentioned, the synclavier, which Shire performed here for 2010, uh, became a favorite of composer Mark Snow during his tenure scoring the X-Files TV series. So there's another notable title that I'd like to spotlight, although I realize I intimated that 2010 was my last example of this particular scoring trend, but this title uh, traces a similar arc musically, Uh, from all synthesizer and electronic instrumentation before later expanding into an acoustic and grandly symphonic soundscape. It's from a veteran composer who, like Jerry Goldsmith, hailed from a concert classical training, modernist writing in the 1960s and 70s, and then also entered a deep exploration uh, into electronic tonalities in the 1980s. This would be legendary French composer Maurice Char, he of Lawrence of Arabia fame, and his memorable melodic score for 1985's outer space science fiction picture Enemy Mine. Enemy Mine was directed by Wolfgang Peterson and starred Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr., enemies now stranded together on a harsh, distant planet. Peterson had recently directed Das Boot and The Never-Ending Story, and composer Marie Jarre was in the middle of a year of towering achievements, with winning scores from Witness, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and The Bride. Like Jerry Goldsmith, Jarre had been incorporating more electronics into his orchestral scores, and then tried his hand at solo synth works. Uh, Dreamscape, and the aforementioned Witness uh, being examples of the latter. Jarre's harmonically complex and eloquent writing for a full orchestra is also fully on display here, which is why I think this score, in a film that straddles the decade itself, also straddles the two-pronged musical approach to science fiction cinema at this time. The traditional acoustically symphonic and the electronic components each take turns driving the drama before working in harmony, without either losing their unique sonic character. Here is a short suite of music from Enemy Mine, which showcases both the synth and orchestral components.
That was a selection of cues from Marie Char's score for 1985's Enemy Mine, a film which back then was considered a very expensive disaster, but has uh, become much more appreciated in recent years. Now, I have another example of a hybrid synth and symphonic musical application to a science fiction film, but the result is really a bit more clumsier and ramshackle of a result, thanks to indecisive filmmakers, and it's topped off by a pop rock anthem in the vein of Queen's Flash Gordon. This is Your, The Hunter from the Future, an epically strange science fiction flick from 1983 based on an Italian comic book called Your, The Hunter, and directed by Antonio Margariti. It's a Turkish-Italian co-production which fuses the genres of post-apocalyptic, prehistoric sword and sorcery, and science fiction tropes. Just imagine rubber dinosaurs crossed with flying saucers crossed with androids, and the hero is modeled after Conan the Barbarian. It was a movie so derided by critics that the New York Times reviewer wrote that she couldn't even finish watching it, and doubted anyone else could either. Happily, for the prolific director Margariti, it was a mild success financially, even though, in his own words, it had an almost zero budget. Uh, Sadly, and perhaps unexpectedly, the music for Yor ends up as much a patchwork as the movie's overall apparent influences. At the start, the production hired British composer John Scott to bolster the film with a grand, richly thematic orchestral score, still very much in vogue in 83 for science fiction and fantasy. Scott, uh, whose music we last heard uh, in the two previous installments, Uh, with The Final Countdown and The People That Time Forgot, responded appropriately with his reliably classical melodicism. However, very little of his entire score is heard in the film. First, here is John Scott's bright, melodic main theme for Yor, the hunter from the future.
That was John Scott's sweeping, heroic main theme for Yor, the Hunter from the Future, one among several themes that he composed for the film, along with some really dynamic, brassy action set pieces. Yet, at some point in post-production, likely due to associations with the director's previous movies, the Italian duo Guido and Maurizio De Angelis were hired to rescore the film from scratch, but in an electronic pop vibe. And this is all topped off by a scorching arena rock anthem. This was, of course, still a time when pop songs heard in movies could sell soundtrack albums, and science fiction wasn't immune to this shrewdly creative decision. Now, this isn't too far off from the pop and rock influence scores we heard in 1980s Flash Gordon uh, and even Barbarella from 1968. But in those instances, the pop aspects are more organically integrated into the final score, whether by the sole composer on the film or with an honest collaboration, as with composer Howard Blake working with the band Queen to adapt their themes for Flash Gordon. With Your, the two scores were not only composed completely independent of each other, but also as diametrically opposed musically as you can hear. In the film itself, cues from both scores are continually sliced and diced together, so there's almost a sonic schizophrenia throughout. The one musical element that really rises above it all is that aforementioned theme song, which boasts an uncomplicated chorus announcing, Yours world, he's the man.
that was a brief tour of yours world, and I hope that no one out there resents me for planting that pop anthem earbud in your brain. So while we're on the topic of pop music intersecting with 1980s science fiction cinema, another such example in which this is front-loaded is the mega-budget, mega-strange, and unfortunately mega-disaster Dune from 1984, directed by the indie icon David Lynch and based on the classic novel by Frank Herbert. After several previous attempts by producer Arthur P. Jacobs and Alejandro Jorodorowski, respectively, it was Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis who launched this particular filmic adaptation, shifting from Ridley Scott as director to David Lynch. Now, this version of Dune is certainly a unique, if somewhat muddled, entry in the genre, and one of the most interesting elements is the music composed by the rock band Toto. As many rock music fans of a certain generation are aware, Toto is an immensely popular band uh, who began in the 1970s and continue uh, performing to this day. Toto is responsible for the perennial classic radio station favorites, Rosanna and Africa. Dune is the band's only film scoring effort, which lead keyboardist and vocalist David Pike sought out. According to Pike's own notes in an expanded album edition of the Dune score, he supplied David Lynch with an unsolicited demo of the theme. Lynch was summarily impressed, Uh, This was before David Lynch actually found his favorite composer in film, Angelo Badalamenti. Um, And David Pike was then asked by Lynch to provide a score in the vein of Russian concert composer Dmitry Shostakovich. Specifically, Lynch mentioned Symphony No. 11. Funny enough, Pike adds that Lynch's only explicit orders to him additionally were to keep it, quote, low and slow. The score for Dune is an expansive, portentous blend of large orchestra and chorus embellished with a drum set, percussion, guitars, and synths, and in some ways kind of makes an intriguing forerunner of Hans Zimmer's rock symphonic style of his own 90s action scores. This unusual example of hiring a band to score your sci-fi epic was somewhat reflected in 2010 Uh, with Daft Punk scoring the Tron sequel, Tron Legacy. And of course, Hans Zimmer himself was hired to score the latest adaptation of Dune, uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Here is a short suite of music from Dune from 1984, uh, music composed by Toto. This suite contains the cue's main title, first attack, and riding the sandworm.
That was music composed by the rock band Toto for the 1984 adaption of Dune, as directed by David Lynch. The cues in that suite were the main title, First Attack, and Riding the Sandworm. Now, there are uh, actually two album releases for that film. The original uh, 40-minute LP, uh, which was released on Polydor Records, if I'm correct, uh, which includes highlights from the score along with dialogue and one additional meditative piece of music called the Prophecy Theme, which is composed by Brian Eno. And this Prophecy Theme is actually tracked often throughout the movie. The second album was released much later on PEG recordings and is a 72-minute edition of solely the score tracks composed by Toto. Similar to how characters in Dune travel without moving, I'm now going to navigate away from the pop and electronic trends of science fiction film scoring in the 1980s uh, to the waning years of the other major trend, that of the classically styled symphonic score, as reinvigorated by John Williams with Star Wars. As I noted at the top of this episode, by the mid-1980s, the Star Wars-inspired outer space adventure entries began to diminish, especially once Star Wars itself exited uh, temporarily the cinematic ring with Return of the Jedi in 1983. There was a great expense to the special effects in these movies as compared to science fiction set on present-day Earth or set only in just the near future. And most of these adventures set on distant planets in distant galaxies, such as the aforementioned Enemy Mine and Dune, wound up far underperforming at the box office. But the music was a consistently excellent component of most. From 1983, directed by Peter Yates and starring Kenneth Marshall and Lisette Anthony, Krull is a lavish and imaginative space fantasy that blends together elements of otherworldly science fiction, old Hollywood swashbucklers, fairy tales, and lasers. It's an entertaining cinematic stew, familiar thanks to Star Wars, and yet, interestingly enough, the original script treatment was set during our own medieval times, and the invading villainous forces were simply neighboring knights. Instead, and this is why I feel comfortable including this movie in my overview, the story was updated to take place on a completely alien planet a planet under invasion by another one, while much of the movie plays kind of like a Knights in Shining Armor fantasy film. Krull features a number of winning attributes of its own, not the least of which is James Horner's dynamic, fiercely melodic score performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and the Ambrosian Singers. There are a wealth of memorable themes essayed throughout for the light and dark, heroic and villainous aspects, the love and aggressive uh, elements of the story. And the music and visuals really drive your engagement more than story and character, similar to what we find with many genre movies of this era. Here is music composed by James Horner for Kroll from 1983.
that was music from the science fiction fantasy adventure Krull from 1983, music composed by James Horner. Now, in 1983, only a few years into his film scoring career, Horner had found himself rapidly in demand for blockbuster projects, competing against A-list titans like John Williams and Jared Goldsmith, John Barry, and others. To illustrate this, he's credited with scoring seven movies in that year alone. And one can only imagine the day and night writing schedule that he maintained for the 90 minutes of music that Krull required of him. The next such film that I want to spotlight is also from 1983 and actually includes the word adventure in its title, so you know it means what it says. This would be Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Originally titled Adventures in the Creep Zone, <laughs> Space Hunter is an entry in the brief revival of 3D in the early 1980s. It was directed by Lamont Johnson and starred Peter Strauss, Molly Ringwald, and Ernie Hudson. The story of Space Hunter is set in the 22nd century, and instead of blending fairy tale attributes into a space fantasy landscape, as with Star Wars and Krull, uh, this graphs on more of a Hollywood Western framework, not unlike the High Noon-inspired Outland from 1981. There's also a dash of the Road Warriors influence uh, seen in the main hero vehicle in Space Hunter, a four-wheeled muscled mean machine called the Scrambler. Since Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone was an Ivan Reitman production, it was a foregone conclusion that veteran composer Elmer Bernstein would be hired. From Animal House in 1978 through Legal Eagles in 1986, whether he was directing or producing, Reitman favored Bernstein as his go-to for musical accompaniment. Along with director John Landis, they both provided Elmer Bernstein many of his biggest commercial successes during the 70s and 80s. Now, we last heard from Bernstein in the last installment, uh, the previous installment, when I presented music from his epic symphonic score for the animated Heavy Metal. For Space Hunter, Elmer Bernstein was quoted in a 1986 interview in Starlog magazine as saying that the producers were, quote, looking for a more conventional approach. So I wrote it like a Western with lots of straightforward heroics and a conventional orchestra, except for the Andes Martino, end quote. Now, this latter instrument uh, that Bernstein mentions, mentions is one that I also mentioned earlier for its use in heavy metal, and how Bernstein became so enamored with its tonal quality that it's consistently featured in nearly all of his subsequent scores after 1981. Here's a taste of that old-school, heroic Western flavor that Bernstein brought to Space Hunter with the end credits.
That was composer Elmer Bernstein's End Credits Cue from 1983's Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, a 3D outer space epic that unfortunately didn't quite generate the revenue it needed in all three dimensions. Shifting back towards the Star Wars-styled efforts that also followed the uh, Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey model, as demonstrated by Luke Skywalker, we have the charming and earnest The Last Starfighter. Released in 1984, directed by Nick Castle and written by Jonathan Butel, this film also intersected with the burgeoning video game arcade craze of the decade. As an unassuming young man bests a video game called The Last Starfighter and is thus recruited into actual interstellar battle. It proved to be another science fiction film somewhat lost in the cinematic shuffle of the era, but its cult status is now earned and its resplendent, highly melodic orchestral score composed by Craig Safan is a favorite among soundtrack fans. Craig Safan is an incredibly capable composer born in Los Angeles and someone who has roots in jazz, classical, and pop music arranging. Uh, most people have heard his music consistently for years as he's responsible for the main theme for the ever-popular TV series Cheers. He also scored Stand and Deliver and Nightmare on Elm Street 4, both in 1988. But as with Basso Polidurus' score for 1982's Conan the Barbarian, The Last Starfighter is usually considered Safan's magnum opus. In his own words, Safan describes being inspired by concert composer John Sibelius and placed brass lines front and center throughout this score. His bright, robust main theme for our hero Alex Rogan immediately launches the film and continues to receive exciting variations afterwards. This theme is threaded through nearly all cues of the score in a very single-minded fashion. It even doubles as the love theme. Of all the science fiction scores that followed that golden age, uh, traditional swashbuckling sound revived by John Williams for Star Wars, The Last Starfighter can certainly be considered a winning descendant. Here's the main title cue from The Last Starfighter from 1984, as composed by Craig Safan.
That was the main title cue for 1984's The Last Starfighter, composed by Craig Safan. On a personal note, the original soundtrack LP, released by Southern Cross Records, was my first record album purchase. Uh, while The Empire Strikes Back and Superman had preceded this, those were both gifts. Uh, but with The Last Starfighter, I had saved up my allowance and anything earned from chores and placed a special order uh, with the local record store. And I think I had to wait around four to six weeks for it to arrive, but uh, wow, that was absolutely an excellent day in my life uh, when that record did actually arrive and I could go pick it up. Since now living in Los Angeles for many years, I did end up meeting Mr. Craig Safan at an event, and he graciously signed my well-worn LP copy of this score, uh, which is now framed. And so, as the decade advances further past the original Star Wars trilogy, we can observe uh, the dwindling amount of science fiction flicks set primarily in outer space. As I noted, the more budget-conscious science fiction projects uh, were set right here on Earth, with perhaps a few special effects shot of a visiting hovering spacecraft or a single scene set in space. Among these last few science fiction adventures with deep space settings and broadly orchestral scores, we find both Life Force from 1985 and Aliens from 1986, both also very much mashups of the science fiction horror variety. First up, Life Force was primarily a British production based on a 1976 novel by Colin Wilson called The Space Vampires, which I guess kind of gives away the main thrust of the plot, um, adapted by Dan O'Bannon of Alien fame and directed by Toby Hooper, who had previously directed the original Poltergeist and uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The film's rather expansive scope covers a space shuttle's mission in deep space, an encounter with Halley's Comet, long-lived energy-draining vampires, and also a zombie apocalypse in London. So during the 1980s, which composer do you think would be best suited for this material? Well, if you guessed a composer mostly associated with jazz, pop, and comedy scores from the 1960s, then you would be incredibly shockingly correct. Henry Mancini, composer of The Pink Panther, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Hatari, and Peter Gunn, and the most frequent musical collaborator with director Blake Edwards, was called upon to provide a thunderous orchestral score for Life Force. And while initially it was James Horner who had been sought out by Toby Hooper for the music, hiring Mancini proved quite inspired. As you might recall, way, way back, in my episode on science fiction movie music of the 1950s, we heard examples of Mancini from B-grade genre programmers such as It Came From Outer Space and Creature From The Black Lagoon. Life Force carries the DNA of those black and white 1950s science fiction flicks in its ice-cold veins.
And with its release in a post-Star Wars landscape, it offered Henry Mancini the chance to write an epic symphonic masterwork for the 100-piece London Symphony Orchestra. Here is composer Henry Mancini's muscular driving main theme from 1985's Life Force. Incidentally, this theme is heard only in the main and in titles of the film. That was the main title from Life Force, composed by Henry Mancini and released in 1985. Incidentally, uh, the same week as when the Ron Howard directed and James Horner scored, friendlier science fiction film Cocoon was released. Life Force was easily defeated uh, at the box office that weekend, but as I noted earlier, this was still the era in which audiences um, responded more positively to friendlier alien visitors, such as E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Starman, uh, than they did the more threatening aliens in The Thing and Life Force. Mancini's score, uh, while written for a large orchestra, which was in vogue uh, for science fiction at the time, doesn't follow the model of thematic application um, as heard in Star Wars and other film scores that emulated it, though. That main theme we heard is never referenced within the body of the score, and there aren't really any recurring motifs for characters or places that you sort of would hang your ear on. The score is uh, classically post-romantic in sound, but structurally, it's more through-composed 
in the fashion of a concert work. Next up, since his name keeps reoccurring, I also wanted to present James Horner's music for Aliens from 1986, the first sequel to the original, this time written and directed by James Cameron, uh, only two years after Terminator had become an unexpected hit. As many fans know, Cameron expertly expanded the characters and the universe seen in Alien, surprising audiences and garnering an Academy Award nomination for lead actress Sigourney Weaver. In the 1979 original, the music was by Jerry Goldsmith, but in this case, with a reduced budget, uh, allotted due to the studio's uncertainty that an Alien sequel could even work, um, James Horner was considered the less expensive alternative. It's an interesting parallel to what transpired in Star Trek II, uh, The Wrath of Khan, honestly, with Horner taking over for Goldsmith after uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979 for much the same reason. Musically, while Horner's score is orchestral, even employing the London Symphony Orchestra, it still doesn't fill uh, outer space in any sweeping romantic gestures. Uh, and only a few melodic or motivic statements heard are repeated or developed. The music here is solely focused on the horror and action, uh, often filled with either fury or dread. and bring no sense of comfort or humanity to the proceedings, as per James Cameron's directions. Horner had very little time, uh, he had very little composing time granted to him on Aliens, and even after completing the work, Cameron edited, moved, or just plain omitted cues uh, from where they had been intended. As an example, this is the cue called Combat Drop, uh, which is James Horner's initial approach to the early exciting scene in the movie, um, and it's a cue which was replaced with a percussive music library track composed by Harry Rabinowitz. So again, this is the unused cue, Combat Drop, composed by James Horner for Aliens from 1986.
That was music composed by James Horner for the 1986 sequel Aliens, a score which also saw Horner receive an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score. So it's interesting that in these last few outer space adventures, post-Return of the Jedi, uh, there was still an effort to utilize a full acoustic orchestra, but the style and application had shifted away from the model expressed in 1977's Star Wars. The use of an orchestra was no longer heard via multiple recurring melodic themes assigned to a character, a place, or a thing, and there wasn't an attempt to recapture and transplant the sound of old Hollywood of the stars. And of course, the acoustic was being wedded to the electronic so that the movie wouldn't sound uh, too old-fashioned. So let's turn this particular episode around and return it back to Earth for the last few highlights, appropriately closing out with the more Earth-bound science fiction titles. As science fiction cinema retreated from deep space settings, uh, even futuristic series such as Star Trek found a reason to set its fourth installment on present-day Earth, and the live-action Masters of the Universe from 1987, uh, previously a toy and cartoon incarnation, very quickly migrates its characters from an alien planet to present-day Los Angeles. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, both have wonderfully vibrant orchestral scores uh, composed by Leonard Rosamond and Bill Conti, respectively, but for time reasons, I didn't uh, want to include them in this episode, just trying to keep uh, this episode from being too long. Now, back on Earth, this is an opportunity to present a young composer who, like James Horner, was new to the 1980s movie screens uh, and very quickly rose uh, to the in-demand A-list thanks to the science fiction genre. Alan Silvestri, who I covered more fully in a previous episode, surprised everyone in Hollywood with what seemed like an effortless left turn in style. From the disco-infused music for the 1970s Chips TV series, and the drum loops in 1984's adventure Romancing the Stone, Now to the iconic symphonic power heard in Back to the Future from 1985. Back to the Future as a movie and Alan Silvestri's score has only gained more love and attention in the years since its release. Uh, even though it was an absolute juggernaut commercially and critically, its original songs uh, were chart toppers, uh, and I'm still shocked to this day that Silvestri wasn't nominated uh, for an Academy Award for his score. The film, of course, follows in the tradition of the time travel subgenre of science fiction, but 
reverses what we had seen in The Time Machine and Time After Time, which had propelled their leads into an unfamiliar future. In Back to the Future, our main hero, Marty McFly, winds up in the past and is tasked with ensuring his own eventual existence. The film's visual style and humor is often in line with the standard teen comedies of the era, but Alan Silvestri's rich, melodic orchestral score unashamedly infuses it with both heart and depth. The brassy, heroic main theme is in the same class as Star Wars, Krull, and The Last Starfighter. This theme almost seems to give Marty courage when he doubts himself, like a force unseen but definitely felt. Here is Alan Silvestri's main theme for Back to the Future from 1985.
Back to the Future was only the second collaboration between composer Alan Silvestri and director Robert Zemeckis, uh, the first being the aforementioned hit Romancing the Stone. Their memorable collaboration continues to this day. Actually, the last such film project uh, is being The Witches from 2020. Silvestri did receive both Saturn Award and Grammy nominations for his Back to the Future score, and in quick succession, uh, was called back to the genre with Flight of the Navigator in 1986, Predator in 1987, My Stepmother is an Alien in 1988, and uh, wrapped up the decade with the one-two punch of Back to the Future 2 and The Abyss in 1989. So, to help round up this installment of my 1980s science fiction movie music overview, I would like to present the latter score, Alan Silvestri's orchestral, choral, and electronic hybrid score for James Cameron's underwater thriller The Abyss. I think there are several reasons why it's notable to include, and it helps me to pause for a moment and connect a few dots in my overview, or at least consider some connections. Released in August of 1989, The Abyss is another strong science fiction effort from writer-director James Cameron and stars Ed Harris, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and Michael Bean. Its story involves uh, the blue-collar workers of an underwater drilling platform called upon to search for a missing nuclear submarine. Now, since it's a James Cameron movie, things get very tense very quickly, and take several unexpected turns um, here, such as the reveal of extraterrestrials living on the bottom of the ocean. This might be seen as the end of the 80s trend of friendly alien visitors in the mold of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. and Starman and Cocoon, um, as when we return to this particular science fiction theme in the 90s, uh, the aliens are presented uh, most often as threatening invaders. Think of Fire in the Sky from 1993, Mars Attacks and Independence Day from 1996, and the first X-Files movie uh, in 1997. But The Abyss um, has extraterrestrials that harken back also to those we met in the 1950s, such as in 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, this is basically in which their message is a warning that humanity is on a course of self-destruction and needs to course-correct immediately. It's a message that we should actually heed again, but it seems that by the next decade, the 1990s and beyond, visiting aliens were then seen as dangerous, a threat to be defeated, and not an opportunity for learning and self-reflection. Musically, Alan Silvestri's score is a highlight of his career and 80s science fiction cinema in general, as it combines full symphony orchestra plus wondrous choral passages and moody synths. The sonic journey climaxes in a sweeping rendition of the score's love theme. Here is part of the end credits cue, in which you can hear an example of that love theme. This is some of Alan Silvestri's music from The Abyss from 1989.
That was soaring music composed by Alan Silvestri for the 1989 science fiction underwater adventure, The Abyss, a title that I thought would make for a grand conclusion to this installment and my overview of music for science fiction cinema in the 1980s. Some listeners out there might be wondering, hey Brian, what about Explorers and Innerspace by Jerry Goldsmith, Slipstream by Elmer Bernstein, Cocoon and Project X by James Horner, Howard the Duck by John Barry, and why did I omit The Elephant in the Room, or Movie Theater, uh, Return of the Jedi? Well, it was difficult to determine how many titles to include and whether I should continue with multiple episodes to best showcase 80s science fiction movie music. So I erred on the side of brevity, narrowing my list to just enough examples to help spotlight the variety of styles heard from 1983 till 89. But I think that I included enough examples, hopefully, to identify the musical trends inherent in this decade, uh, what was new and what was being carried forward from previous decades. Even with the newly expected template of traditional orchestral music settling in uh, for science fiction, the 1980s were a peak time of musical surprises and rule-breaking, somewhat akin to the 1960s, when we heard a mix of orchestral scores, jazz, pop, and rock scores, and avant-garde music derived from concert techniques. During the 1980s, the large-scale orchestral score continued reigning over much of science fiction, but was soon wedded, as you heard, to electronics and bolstered by choirs. Running parallel to this were the experiments in synthesizers and pop styles, connecting science fiction to present-day musical trends. These sounds could also keep the audiences off-balance by the unfamiliar soundscapes, as with the avant-garde approaches heard in Planet of the Apes and Fantastic Voyage in the 1960s. During the 1990s, science fiction was mostly earthbound, small-scale, and threaded into more overt action or comedy frameworks. Overall, there was a trend towards homogenization in movie music across the industry as a whole, and thus less experimentation, less wild swings for the fences. Nevertheless, there are still phenomenal scores for the genre during the next decade. And as we reflect on the four decades of history covered thus far in these installments, I hope that listeners out there can hear that between this and this, there is a galaxy's worth of imagination and invention to be heard and enjoyed in music for science fiction cinema. I want to thank everyone for listening today to this episode of the podcast. I surely hope that this sonic journey into the music of science fiction cinema has continued to be entertaining and illuminating for everyone. Charting science fiction titles in the 1990s would be the next logical installment, although I'm not sure when I will pick back up with this focus. Topics for the upcoming episodes might veer in a completely new direction. Music heard in this episode are from the following films. Terminator, composed by Brad Fidel, Runaway by Jerry Goldsmith, Starman by Jack Nietzsche, 2010, composed by David Shire, 
Enemy Mine, composed by Maurice Jarre. Your The Hunter from the Future, music by John Scott, and additional music by Guido DeAngelis and Maurizio DeAngelis, and the song Yours World, performed by Oliver Onions, Dune by Toto, Krull and Aliens, both composed by James Horner, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone by Elmer Bernstein, The Last Starfighter, composed by Craig Safan, Life Force by Henry Mancini, a little bit of Star Trek IV, uh, composed by Leonard Rosenman, and music by Alan Silvestri for The Abyss, Back to the Future, Romancing the Stone, and the TV series Chips. If you would like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at scoretosettleblogspot.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash scoretosettle and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review. I'm always appreciative of that. And if you leave a review, you can also get a shout out on the next episode. Thanks again for listening. 